Welcome to this special bonus episode of the Story Nerd Podcast. My name is Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I specialize in stories by, for, and about women. In today's episode, I'm interviewing Alex Sokolow. Alec is an Academy Award-nominated screenwriter who has been in the business for more than 35 years. He's worked with all the major studios, and his credits include Garfield, Cheaper by the Dozen, and of course, Toy Story. He was kind enough to sit down with me to discuss the hero's journey, so here's our conversation. Alec Sokolow, thank you so much for joining me here on Story Nerd today. Thank you for having me, Valerie. I want to start right at the very beginning by saying that we just finished a four-week course on the hero's journey together. You were obviously teaching. I was a student. And you started, I think, in the very first class, maybe in the first 10 minutes, by saying that the hero's journey is as much about what's happening within the character as it is about what's happening, you know, in the outside world of the character. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, yeah, I mean, I, my my um, understanding of, of the hero's journey is that it is an internal uh, journey. It's it's an internal cycle that uh, Campbell, you know, was, uh, I guess, distilling. Uh, but that uh, I think that when you hear the word hero and you think about in the case of movies, you think about screenplays, you think about protagonists, you think about character. And uh, that it's it's what's going on externally. It's the it's the plotting. It's the it's the set pieces. It's the progression of storytelling. But for me, the hero's journey has always kind of been about what's really going on inside that protagonist. And and so when I look at the uh, twelve steps, that how I look at that, I think they're all seen from from the needs of the character and from the from the journey that's going, the transformation that the character is going through internally. And that through that internal transformation, you actually do get external results um, that get played out in plot and everything else. But yeah, I mean, I, that's how I see it. I, I think that uh, it, it, it may be uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes it could feel like it's external, but for me, it's, it's entirely uh, watching a character uh, who you, you know emotionally and then watching that character being called into some kind of action, being thrust out into a, uh, a different uh, metaphorical or, or actual world, struggling to figure out the skills and everything uh, that are needed, but really uh, all in pursuit of the internal emotional um, conflicts and, and uh contradictions and everything else, getting to the point in which by conquering that internal side, they've, they've earned the right to actually transform and be a hero. A few weeks back uh, here on the podcast, we did an episode on Toy Story uh-huh. and we recorded that before I took your course. So it was a little nerve wracking. I thought, I don't know, are we even in the ballpark? Maybe, maybe not. Because what we do on Story Nerd, our listeners are novelists and screenwriters, and mm-hmm. we're looking at story structure. That's what we're looking at. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And Toy Story has two protagonists, Woody and Buzz, obviously. And a question that I get from a lot of writers is, how do you write a story that has two main characters or two points of view? Like, 
what what are we supposed to do with that? So I'm really curious to hear how you and the others who are working on Toy Story, how did you tackle having two main characters? Yeah, well, I I I think that you know it's a buddy story, and and buddy movies have certain kind of rules, if you will. Uh, you know, one of the big rules uh, is that uh, you know these two disparate characters personalities, whatever, are kind of locked together by forces greater than themselves. And, uh, and then as it goes on, there's kind of an algorithm that works in buddy storytelling of who has the power and who needs to trust the other character. And, and it's a way of testing and a way of kind of guaranteeing there's going to be conflict, uh, until, until there's kind of a need for resolution where, where the characters, you know, in comedy and rom-com in toy story somehow come together and accomplish a goal they couldn't have accomplished without each other. Um, having said that, at least for me, I, you know, I, I always saw toy story, uh, uh, more as Woody's story, uh, the first one and, uh, and that Buzz's story in it, although it had equal weight in the, in the billing and in, in some sequences and, and Buzz has his own arcing. Uh, it kind of takes second place to the emotional stakes that we were asking uh, the viewer to go on, which was Woody's emotional stakes, which, uh, you know, it, 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 to talk about it now does not necessarily sound like the thing that, that a kid's movie would be, uh, you know, centered around, but really like a, an older character. Uh, we always saw Woody as the older brother, but an older character who, when you meet him, is is sitting um, at the top of the hierarchy in his community uh and is displaced and in the anger of being displaced by a newer character a threat to his authority a threat to his place in the hierarchy he reacts uh you know uh, in the first draft uh he he did proactively try and get rid of buzz in 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 the finished movie he thinks about just getting him this you know displaced so that he can be andy's favorite but it ends up still getting buzz cast out of the room and, and then Woody kind of becomes a bit of the reluctant hero at that point, trying to get Buzz back for his own reasons so that he can just get back to being, you know, the top of the food chain in the in the in Andy's room with the other toys. Um, eventually, obviously, the story takes us to Sid's, um, you know, the personification of evil for a toy at that point. And and Woody kind of goes through a transformation in there where he realizes a uh that, that buzz isn't the devil that buzz is a toy that uh that andy needs buzz and that he needs buzz and and he becomes quite altruistic and his internal um uh, storytelling kind of shifts to one uh, where he's now not only accepting a buzz but he's willing to sacrifice himself for buzz because he realizes how important he is so that that's the that's the emotional spine of toy story Whereas Buzz's, um, you know, kind of journey of not knowing he was a toy or believing he was a real hero and, and kind of being deluded until he's not, uh, doesn't have the same arcing. You know, that, that's, that's not the spine of the movie. Now, he has his own arc, but that's not what held the movie together. And even though I wasn't part of the construction of the second Toy Story, I think there was a natural second story which was that second one was buzz's story really uh when it comes to the stakes and everything and woody was kind of more even though he was put at risk 
uh, by the collectible guy and, and all that stuff, he was kind of a little bit more passive in, in the resolution. And so I, I think that for the buddy thing, you might actually start to really look at buddy storytelling and, and realize there is one character that, there, that, that movies tend to really hang the emotional stakes on. You know, Toy Story was, was um, uh, inspired by uh, you know, the, the, the 80s buddies movies like Leap the Weapon and, and 48 Hours um, and uh, Midnight Run. Uh, those were all movies that were talked about when we were going through the story part of, of Toy Story. And when you actually look at those movies, you realize they are hanging the emotional stakes on one of the two characters as well. In the case of Leap the Weapon, uh, it, to me, it's Danny Glover's character uh, because they kind of frame the movie where it's like, what's the big risk at the end? He may lose his family. You know, uh, it doesn't mean that the Mel Gibson character didn't have stakes as well, but that's not what the whole movie was was hanging on. Um, you know, 48 Hours, it was a Nick Nolte character, uh, the burnt-out cop who somehow had a have some kind of redemption uh, that that really was the shifting of, of um, stakes in the course of the movie and, and in midnight run, it's De Niro's character. You know, um, he had the story, right? It's like, he's the, he's the burnt out ex cop who has to kind of confront his devils along the way and, and get, gets a little prize at the end. Um, you know, in the, in the money that, uh, Chuck Roden's character, uh, bequeathed him, you know? So I, I think that buddy stories have that, like they, they do ultimately rely on one, of the characters to be the, the emotional spine that holds the macro structure together while the other character rises up because their issues are as vital in those moments. It makes me so happy to hear you say that you all were looking at other films like 48 Hours Lethal Weapon as examples of how to tackle this because that's something that we talk about a lot is studying other people's work. We call them masterworks. Yeah, yeah, yeah to see how other people have used a particular technique, how they've approached two protagonists, how they've used Hero's Journey, for example. So uh, listen, the pros are clearly doing it. So if it's good enough for you guys, yeah, it's yeah. good I enough for us. Yeah, I can't <laughs> anybody else, but I've always done that. Like from the first script I ever wrote, uh, for stories I ever tried to tell, for me, uh, movies going back, going back to um, Buster Keaton, uh, movies have always been these reservoirs, uh, of, of, of filmmaking knowledge and devices and everything. And I would always kind of break them down and say, well, why did that work for me? And if it worked there, how can I repurpose that? Hopefully not steal it, hopefully repurpose it for my needs. And it gave, it always has given me great comfort to be able to look at any, any work of art, but like movies and say, well, it worked. Why did it work? you know, and then try to just put the parts on the table and then say, well, what do I need right now? Um, so yeah, absolutely. So with the hero's journey, there are 12 steps and we went through them all in, in your course. Mm -hmm. And you had said that sort of seven, eight, nine were, were kind of the, the heart of it. And for me personally, I focus in on step eight, which is the ordeal yeah, yeah. because that's when, that's when the change happens within the character. So tell me what you think of this. I think of the steps leading up to the ordeal as sort of setting up that change within the character. And then everything that happens after that is 
paying it off. So the, the characters, one way at the beginning, leading up to this shift, and here they, this is how they are at the end. What do you think of that? <laughs> well, I, I, I would agree with that. I, what, what I was uh, saying, I think, in that course, and, and what I believe is that when you do get to kind of towards the end of the second act of your writing and you do kind of go through the ordeal, whatever the metaphorical innermost cave is, whatever dragon has to get slayed, whatever sword has to be won, whatever, whatever language you want to use. Uh, for me, that's always been the moment that just crystallized exactly what it is I'm writing about. And to me, that's why I, I got so giddy about that in, in the course of the class. But in general, it's just like, that's the moment where you just, you, you're, you're laying everything bare because it, it is about the, in, in the inner character's journey. And if you get that right, you are now seeing for yourself, maybe for the first time, maybe not, but you're seeing for yourself what it is you're really writing about. And, and, and so from a writing point of view, that's, that's where I feel like I've broken the spine or something where I'm like, that's the story. Okay, great. But then also from the formula of, of the hero's journey, and, and it, it does make sense that by surviving that, by gaining that wisdom, by conquering that demon, however you, whatever you want to call that ordeal, uh, the hero has changed. And the hero now has gotten over something that was hanging them up or empowered them in some way, powered them up. And that gives them the power to bring the story to completion. You know, that, that gives them the clarity and the strength. And even if the story doesn't end uh, happily, the hero has been forever changed. So I do think that's the inflection point of, of screenplays and of movies. Absolutely. I want to use Toy Story again as an example, because mostly because we've used it on the show already. And I know that our listeners, they have to watch all the movies that we talk about or what we're saying doesn't make a lot of sense. So I know they've watched Toy Story. What then would you say is the ordeal for Woody? Um, well, in I guess in literal terms, he's in Sid's room. You know, he's he's again, if, if his value system in that story was being being the favorite toy of Andy, having the spot on Andy's bed, the security and uh, and the dominance, if you will. But but really knowing that he was Andy's favorite toy um, and that's where he's starting, then, you know, his biggest fear is not only not being Andy's favorite toy, but being discarded and 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 really not being valued at all as a toy. Um, in the very first draft of Toy Story, uh, Joel and I, my, my writing partner at the time uh, that we wrote that together, um, we actually had written in the first act like a, about a two-page or three-page montage of about 40 years of Woody being discarded, which, which you know, didn't make the final cut, it didn't, never got animated, but it really helped establish his emotional uh, needs. He has a lifetime of knowing what it's like to not be the favorite, to be discarded, to be thrown out. So I think that uh, the ordeal is really uh, personified being in Sid's room, realizing that he may never get back to Andy's room, realizing that uh, he may be stuck with Sid and Sid may look to damage and mar him like he has all his other toys and, and realizing that, uh, you know, in a way he needs Buzz uh, and he doesn't need him just for the selfish reasons. He needs him for Andy. And so the ordeal is kind of, like the shift of being more altruistic while confronting a, a very harsh potential future in reality for him. 
Um, and, and, and through kind of getting off his high horse emotionally and being more, uh, you know, simpatico with Sid's toys, he, he's able to even then get through to buzz. And, and, you know, there is a moment where, where Woody could have gotten away and he chose not to, he chose to say buzz. And I think that that's somewhere in there is the ordeal. And then the, the, the prize, the elixir, you know, the selflessness that's going to drive the rest of the movie. The idea of understanding what your character is afraid of is really important, isn't it? In order to make that ordeal work or really sing for the audience. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I tend to write family. I tend to write kind of uh, maybe more, uh, you know, for, for younger audiences. I want to make things kind of sanitized a little bit emotionally. But but I think that's true for all genre. And I, I, and I, I definitely believe that, you know, the cliche, the, the Hitchcockian cliche of like, oh, give somebody a phobia in the first five minutes and then play it out, I think kind of holds true formulaically in, in movies is, is that there are things that we know as writers and as the filmmakers and directors may chew on that they just keep hidden or they play around with in nice subtle ways, but they will eventually come out if the story is going to kind of have the right arc in. Yeah, Cheaper by the Dozen is a, a family favorite of ours. Oh, cool. So my niece, you've made me very cool in my niece's eyes. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, something that you had said in the class, I think, which was probably my biggest aha moment, and it has to do with the ordeal. You said, I'm paraphrasing, when the character's having the ordeal, this is when you want to sort of pause the storytelling and really drive it home. And you talked about having, you know, maybe a soliloquy or a, or a monologue or something like that. And Woody has one obviously in uh, toy story. Yeah. When you said that the light bulb went on in my head, can you tell us a little more about that? Well, well, I, th- I think that it was in the context of, of the narrative drive that like, you know, movie making uh, is about, pushing the storytelling forward and pacing and creating like the tensions and frictions. And then even the, if you will, vacuums of storytelling, i.e. goals or rules that have to be, that characters have to go through. And there's such a, a uh, requirement to kind of push things forward. And in those moments when actually now you're in the ordeal and you're in the inner cave and you're in uh, whatever, that's, those are the moments where you actually are not, at least for me, I'm not thinking I need to push anything forward. I've, I've arrived exactly where the story is supposed to be. And that's where I think you can stop the storytelling a little bit and, and let it breathe. And whether you do it with words or with deeds, it's still, you don't want to cheat that moment because you're asking the audience uh, to, to, to trust in the journey and, and you hopefully earn that moment. And, and so, yeah, I think that it's a natural thing. And when you start to maybe see all movies through that hero's journey uh, uh, formula, you'll realize most movies do stop their forward narrative drive, even if it's just for 30 seconds or 10 seconds. But they do to just hit home the point to really kind of the wound is open, explore the character. And, and then through that, then you can start again. So is the hero's journey something, a tool that you rely on when you write all your stories or does it depend on the story? How do you approach it? Um, I rely on it. I don't 
I don't use it as gospel, but I, if I'm having trouble with my storytelling for me, if I'm, if I feel like I'm not pushing forward in the right way, if I feel something, I'll go back and say, am I running the character through these 12 beats? And, and it's, it's always a source of comfort and help like a compass, if you will, emotionally, what, you know, why is this scene here? Why is this scene here kind of stuff? But no, actually, I mean, going into that hero's journey class, one of the things that was funny is I was asked to kind of provide a writing sample or something to potentially be read. And I realized a lot of the scripts I write don't kind of follow it as overtly as others. And, um, and so I, I, I tend to take it, a, a more philosophical approach to screenplays and birthing them. And that is um, always trying to do my best, always trying to be entertaining and captivating. And, and like I said, drive things forward and be declarative in the writing. And then hopefully things emerge uh, that become like ultimate realities. And when you have a story that's really um, character driven, the hero's journey is fantastic. If you tend to tell a story that's a little bit more, if not meta, but like a little bit more plot driven or a little bit more world driven, uh, then, then trying to adhere to the hero's journey may actually collide with like the, the other devices that will help you get through that, that script. Something else that you said in the course that gave me comfort, I guess, (laughs) because I'm primarily a novelist. I also write screenplays, but for novelists, we have no direct connection with our readers. You know, we've got words on a page and then the novel goes out into the world and we, we hope it finds an audience that loves and appreciates it as much as we do. But you said the same thing for screenwriters, that the screenwriter is not in the room when their work is being discussed oftentimes. So it struck me that whether you're a novelist or a screenwriter, you basically have the same tools, which is black text on a white page. Yeah. So how do you tackle that? How do you deal with that? Well, uh, you know, it's hard. I, it's hard on certain core emotional levels. Um, I can't speak for, for the publishing business. Um, I've spent most of my life in some form of, of screen playwriting. Um, and what is hard is, at least for me, I realized a long, long time ago, how little control I had over anything and how I think screenwriters uh, are kind of necessary evils. They're, they're valued, but by the system up to a point, but as your work is more realized on the page or is more realized in the process, your value as a person tends to diminish in the process. And, and that's, you know, for, for self-preservation, I, I don't even want to be in those rooms because, you know, I mean, I mean, literally we're having this conversation. I had a, I had a meeting this morning uh, on a movie I wrote that was, I, I was scheduled to direct this past summer. It, it got paused because the money had didn't behave. And the meeting this morning was, Oh, the production's moving to Canada and we need a Canadian director. Right. And so Thank you. We love your work. And, but go step, you know, go stand in the corner. And, you know, what, what I realize, and, and it's just, it's about, I guess, thick skin and survival stuff is that you you just have to focus as a writer on what you control. And 
I think the first drafts are really what I control. Like that, those are mine. Those, those, they, they're three dimensional in my head. The experience is very cathartic and I see the movie and it's my movie then. And the second I'm done with it and the second I hand it to anybody else, it's the second it stops being mine and then it's business. And then it's like, I hope it, it's good. You mentioned Cheaper by the Dozen. That was a wonderful movie. I could tell you the work that Joe and I did on it was was pretty solid, but I think the movie's better than the work we did. And and there were comically twelve writers on Cheaper by the Dozen, uh, but but uh, you know we did enough to merit credit, and and that's because we we they had thrown out the first four scripts or, or writers, and we were writer five, but we came in basically did another first draft with a new story, and that's what. That you know, so what do I think? I think um, on good days, I I feel very blessed for being able to tell stories and to live in that wonderful place in my head. And then on not so good days, I just try to not hate the people who uh, judge me. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I could talk to you for hours and hours, but I am respectful of your time and I'm mindful of your time. So. As a last question, I'm really curious to know what advice you have for the novelists or screenwriters out there who are grinding away, maybe on a first draft or early draft, possibly of their very first novel or screenplay. I get a lot of uh, sighs when I mention uh, writing multiple drafts to people. I know you've talked about writing multiple drafts. So what advice do you have for those of us out there in the wilderness in our rooms by ourselves, uh, grinding away on this stuff. You know, I, it's, again, it's probably more philosophical and practical, but I think the advice is, is that there's something magical about telling a story. And there always has been for me. And when I am writing a first draft and I am telling a story, my days just seem better. My monkey brain is quieter. My, my life is more accepting. And I try to find the ultimate value in that, that it's, it's that writing is a Zen concept where it's the journey itself that's the enriching part, not the destination. Uh, and, and when I am close to finishing something or I finish something, I do feel the sadness in this kind of vacuum of like, that's done. And so it's, it's like a little metaphorical death in some way. Um, and so the advice I would just say is, is, is hopefully you love or at least appreciate yourself in the process and, and not necessarily get the hung down on the result, even though the result is so important, but really look at it as if it's, if it's a day you get to kind of, you know, chop the wood and, and, and go down the mine shaft of, of the ideas and do whatever metaphors you want to use. If it's a day that you're able to do that, it's the day's better for that. And, and that over a period of time, it, your life will be better for that, you know, um, whether or not you end up paying your bills with it, you know? And, and so that's, and that's not speaking where I am pretending that reality isn't reality, but I just think that, you know, and I, I try to be very gentle with myself when I'm writing and I try to be very gentle with any writers I talk with emotionally because it's a pretty brave thing to to sit down and try and write on the proverbial blank piece of paper and it's driven by 
a lot of hope and a lot of grit and a lot of um, uh, anxiety, you know, and uh, that those are all natural aspects, but that it doesn't make it any less hard. So the, the advice is just to really love yourself, be gentle with yourself and find value in the day's work. And, and then over a period of time, hopefully you have a, a good result. So for anyone who wants to find out more about you and what you do, where can they go? Uh, so I have a website, alexsokoloconsulting.com. I've, I've started a consulting business uh, and try and help other writers with their stories. Uh, you can look at me for me there. I'm on LinkedIn. I, I don't know. I, I don't really do the social media thing that well. Uh, but th- th- start there and, um, you know, that's uh, somehow we're all connected, right? So, uh, <laughs> you can find me, but, uh, alexsokoloconsulting.com is probably the best, uh, initial place if you want to say hi to me. Alec, thank you so much for your time today. Awesome. This was fun. That wraps up this special bonus episode of the Story Nerd Podcast. For the rest of August, we'll be playing archive episodes of the show. Melanie and I have selected four of our favorites to share with you again. So sit back and enjoy, and we'll return on September 6th with a brand new episode and a brand new season. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For access to writing templates and worksheets and more than 70 hours of training, subscribe to My Inner Circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and threads at Valerie underscore Francis. If you'd like to find out about books to help you read like a writer, visit Melanie on Facebook and Instagram under Melanie Hill Author or find out more about her at melaniehill.com.au. And remember, story theory doesn't have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Mm-hmm.